0: Paul wrote this letter to Titus, and it reads, first, um, the first chapter, beginning in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders into every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, arrogant or quick Tempered, or a drunkard, or violent for, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to what is trust wor- to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so today we are looking at this this section, and just in way of. Uh, review, Um, last week we looked at what is an elder, and we basically concluded that he is a spiritually mature man, knowledgeable in the scriptures, officially recognized by the local church, um, exercising oversight and shepherding God's flock. And we looked at different terms in the New Testament that are used in our Bibles for elder, one being elder, overseer, pastor, leader, even is, is used in that context. And we talked all about that. And if you're interested in that, you can get the tape from last week. But the second question we asked ourselves is, what do elders do? What's the role of an elder? What do they do? Well, elders should work together to exercise oversight and shepherd God's flock in a given local church. And so the first thing that we looked at in, in detail, and this is just an overview, a review, uh, elders should shepherd God's flock. And so you see up there on the screen, they should know the scriptures, they should exhort sound doctrine, they should devote themselves to preaching, teaching, they should care for the flock, uh, they should pray for the spiritually weak, they should disciple younger men, they should uh, have, uh, gently exhort and encourage one another. And then the second thing we said that elders should give oversight to the flock, Not just shepherd, but oversight. And so what does that involve? That involves everything from guarding the flock from error to determining church policies and and, uh, making decisions about the needs and the direction of the church, working to resolve conflicts and so forth. Um, And it's important to understand here that the elders do not necessarily do all the work that needs to be done. That's not the role of an elder. And that's not the role of a pastor either. But they need to make sure that it gets done. All right, And the way they make sure that it gets done is one way, is by delegating to qualified people who are committed to the ministry, willing to take on certain tasks under the elders. Okay? We practice that here in our church. Um, for years, we've always had a fellowship time over in um, the church, the fellowship hall, after the service. Now you might say, okay, well... You just show up, and there's food on the tables, and there's drinks, and there's coffee, and it looks nice. But you have to understand there's people that actually do this. This doesn't just magically appear every Saturday night, okay? There's people that go out and go to the grocery store and buy all this stuff, and then they they come together usually on a Sunday morning, or I've come in here Saturday night late and seen everything already set up. Just amazing, so they put forth their time and effort into that hospitality to make that a special time for us after the service. Okay, if you asked what's going to be on the tables over there for food, if you asked me as the pa- I have the slightest idea. I don't know. Now, I do know a little bit. I don't want to lie because I was over there earlier and, and Joe asked me, hey, do you like this? <laughs> so I, but usually I don't have a clue what's going on over there. But I know one thing, when we're done with the service over here, we're never going to walk over to the fellowship hall and walk into an empty hall and the chairs and tables aren't going to be set up and there's no coffee made and there's no water, there's nothing. I know that's never going to happen. Never say never, right? But I have faith that that would never happen. Why is that? Because there's checkpoints involved. Okay, Darlene, John, Darlene graciously, Darlene and Jim graciously kind of over. See that, I almost said Darlene Johnson, Darlene Byrne, oversee that ministry there, okay? And with the help of my wife and others, they work together to make sure that, you know, there's a team of people in place. It's not the same people every week. You know, there's a team of four or five um, couples that, and individuals that help out over there. And when you, you're done eating and your stomach's full and you finish with your fellowship and you go home, well, guess what? It doesn't magically clean itself up. There are people that are committed to come together and say, okay, now we've got to make this mess clean. Okay? So they stay behind. Sometimes they're here to 1 or 2 in the afternoon cleaning up. I don't know who those people are all the time. Why? Because that's something that the elders have delegated to people who desire that. Okay? If you ask me, what's going on in Sunday school this morning? I would say, you know what? I don't know. I know they're teaching the Word of God. I know they're going to sing some songs. And I know they'll probably have a prayer time and sharing time. But I don't know what their lesson is. I'm not involved to that extent. Okay, Who's working in the nursery this morning? I don't know, but I know somebody's over there graciously caring for our children. Now, in a smaller church, you have a tendency to have your your hand in a lot of things. As a pastor, that's just the way it is because things need to get done. And when there's people that don't do it, you you have to do it. Okay, But the the model is, is that the elders oversee these things. They don't necessarily do all these things. And that's where in a lot of churches there's a void of men who are willing to step up and lead to some degree, and they lead by serving. See, you don't just waltz into a church and say, hey, I want to be a leader in the church. No. That's not going to work in our church. What we do is we sit back and we see, how do you serve? How do you serve the body of Christ? Even though maybe you don't have a title Are you serving the body of Christ? Are you doing it from your heart? Are you doing it with the right motives? Do you feel called by God to do these things? See, we're not in a church that makes people feel guilty and uh, guilts them into doing things. Been down that road. That's just a train wreck ready to happen, okay? Because then they're doing it with an attitude and it doesn't get done right and you've got to go back and do it over anyway. No, we're looking for people that really want to serve the body of Christ in a lot of different ways. And so these elders oversee all this stuff going on. Elders should also work together to exercise oversight and shepherd God's flock. And the point there was that the leadership of any local church should be plural. I'm not in charge of this church. Jesus Christ is in charge of this church. We're all called under-shepherds of Jesus Christ. This isn't my church. This isn't your church. This is his church. And I think that the sooner we understand that, the better... We understand the commitment that we're making. When you commit to a ministry here at Grace Bible Church, who's that commitment being made to? It shouldn't be being made to a person. It should be being made to the Lord, right? It's His church. You're serving Him. Now, do people appreciate your input? Do you appreciate appreciate your service? I hope they do, because you're taking time to put that effort into it. But don't ever be the kind of servant that, you know, when they don't get the pat on the back, they get a grudge and they hold an attitude. You know, there are some servants, unfortunately, beloved, that, you know, unless you're there to pat them on the head every time they do something good, you know, they get frustrated and angry and build up all this stuff. We don't want that. We don't have time for that. There's too much work that needs to be done. If you want to serve the Lord, great. Roll up your, your sleeves and get at it. You know, that's, that's the kind of church we are. You want to you serve in a, a ministry? Maybe we don't even have a ministry. And you're saying, you know, God's always spoken to my heart about this kind of ministry, but they don't have it there at Grace Bible Church. Come and talk to us. Say, have you ever thought of this ministry? Because if it's something that fits within the confines of, word, of the word of God, and it and it makes sense in every way, and you're willing to commit to it, hey, we're willing to say, here you go. Go for it. Obviously, under the accountability of the elders. But we don't want to hold people back from serving. Mario kind of oversees our men's breakfasts every every month. We appreciate that. A lot of time, a lot of effort goes into that. He actually, afterwards, after everything's done, I get home and I get an email from Mario and it's got the outline of everything we talked about. And that's encouraging to me because that tells me, you know what, this means something to him. And I remember... Right. A couple of years now ago, we, we had breakfast, Mario and I. And he said, you know, we, we haven't done the men's breakfasts in a while. What do you think, Mario? Well, what do you mean? Well, why don't you start it? <laughs> and he goes, well, I, I don't know. I go, well, you're the only one sitting here talking to me over a cup of coffee about this. And if God's put it on your heart, brother, I'll give you 100% backing to do whatever needs to get done. And see, that's how God works. Through the, through the equipping, through the delegating of people who are willing to serve. So ask yourselves, where are you serving? How are you serving? Well, the third thing we looked at quickly last week was how are elders chosen? And it says in the, in the, the Word of God here that elders are to be appointed. They are, they're appointed by qualified men. Elders should desire the office. In other words, you shouldn't need to talk somebody into being an elder, they should have that calling upon their life. Elders are not chosen by popularity. It's not the guy with the biggest business or the biggest bank account or drives the nicest car or owns the biggest home, or let's make him an elder. No, that's not how you choose church leadership. Elders' overall character should reflect their spiritual maturity. And we we basically ended and we said we can group these qualifications under three headings, maturity in the home, maturity in personal character, and maturity in sound doctrine. That brings us to today. That was all review. Review. If you're new with this, sorry, but we kind of review every week because sometimes people miss the message and they're not always faithful to go onto the website where all the messages are and, um, you know, listen to it if they miss a Sunday. So we want to make sure that you're up to speed as we teach through a book of the Bible. But today we want to look at this blueprint, continuing this blueprint for church leadership. And we w- we're looking at God's order for his church. And today we want to look at the qualifications of elders. And we once again, we're talking about... Character issues. I read an illustration by Dwight Eisenhower. He he wrote this in his book "At Ease: Stories I'd Tell to My Friends," and he says early on in his career, he had an encounter with an officer in under his command who basically was cheating at cards. He was cheating, and when he called the man in to his office. Before the man came in, he had got some of his cards and laid them out on this table. And the man came in and he asked the officer, do you see these cards on the table? Eisenhower did. And the officer said, yeah. And he said, well, are they yours? And the officer said, no, uh, no, 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 they're not mine. And Eisenhower said, well, would you like me to show you exactly where you have marked these cards? Because I can't. Would you like me to do that for you? And the officer stood there, kind of hung his head down, and said, no, no, that's fine. To end it, Eisenhower asked him this. Would you rather resign at once for the good of the service, or would you like to be tried in a court-martial? And the officer looked down and went in and said, you know, I'll submit my resignation this afternoon. After a couple of days... A congressman from this officer's district came in, accompanied by the officer's father, made an appointment with Eisenhower, came into his office, and the congressman introduced the, this, this man's father, this officer who was cheating his father, as one of his most important constituents, and suggested that somehow Eisenhower withdraw this, his son's resignation and transfer him to another camp, just let it go. And Eisenhower says, I de- I decline politely. This would be passing the problem on to another commander. And the man would repeat the same offense. And in his book he writes, After the congressman argued and blustered a bit, he asked whether I could have taken out of his resignation the words, For the good of the service. Eisenhower replied, Not as far as I'm concerned. The man had been guilty of cheating. And he had to take his request to the War Department. See, General Eisenhower knew that leadership requires some form of character. It's very true. If a man cheats at cards, if he's not trustworthy, then he's not qualified to lead other men into combat. That was his point. I mean, can you imagine if something like that happened today in our armed forces? No doubt, the person that made that kind of a call... The Eisenhower of today, who was willing to stand up against someone, would, would probably be um, brought up on charges. <laughs> they wouldn't fly. Because the common view today, thank you, Mr. President, <laughs> the common view today is what we do in private should not affect our character, it has nothing to do with our performance as a leader. And see, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul said that he left Titus in Crete to correct some what? Some problems. They had some issues there in this little struggling church. And one of the primary prescriptions to get these churches on solid ground was to appoint godly leaders. That was thing number one on Paul's list of Titus. And when you look around the globe, you look around the United States, and you see churches struggling here and there, inevitably, an unhealthy church is unhealthy because it has unhealthy leadership. And so, we have to understand that Christ runs his church through a plurality, a plurality of spiritually mature Men, not women, men, that's what the Bible says, called elders or overseers. And these men are called to shepherd his flock. These men are not elected by some popular contest, okay? Rather, they're officially recognized by the church congregation and the current eldership by virtue of their meeting the qualifications that are given in two places. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, to and Titus, our text before us today, chapter 1, verses 6-9. to And that's important to understand for the health of a church, that we understand these qualifications, that we don't compromise on these kind of qualifications. Now, you might say, well, why are there two lists? The two lists are very similar to some degree, but they're not identical. Um, they're not even meant to be exhaustive in any way. Okay, it's just meant to be a guideline. And it talks about character issues. In both lists, the one thing that both lists have in common, that both lists begin with, the man needs to be above reproach in his home life. And so there's a lot of different character Uh, prescriptions that we can look at in the word of God concerning Christians and even women, they should dress modestly, all these things, okay, but here we're talking specifically about those who are called to be an elder in a local church. They're talking about spiritual maturity in different areas. Spiritual maturity in the home, spiritual maturity in their personal character, and spiritual maturity in sound doctrine. And so the first point here, okay, under our text this morning, is an elder must, what's the first thing they must do? They must reflect spiritual maturity in his home life. There must be spiritual maturity in his home life. And this goes under the, the, the heading of being above reproach. It's used in verse 6, it's also used in verse 7. And it basically sums up a man's home. Home, home life, the way he lives, and then it also sums up his personal character. In either one of those, he should be above reproach. Uh, after doing some study, I found out the Greek word in Titus is different from the, the word over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, but basically it means the same thing. It means that there is nothing in a man's life for which a charge or accusation could be brought against him. He's a man of integrity. He doesn't live one way in the church when he's here on Sunday and then another way when he's at work or at home. His wife and children would affirm that he displays the fruit of the Spirit at home. If he sins, he's quick to confess those sins and ask forgiveness. See, under this great requirement of being above reproach, Paul specifies two areas in which It's mandated. The first one is, an elder must be a one-woman man. A one-woman man. He says, the husband of one wife. You say, well, is that opposed to having many wives? I mean, I got one wife. That's that's hard enough. You know, I can't imagine having more than one wife. Good night. No, he's not talking about that. Okay, okay. There's a lot of different interpretations that go into this, but remember, there's only one true interpretation, many applications of any scripture. And some, even in the early church, the church fathers interpreted it to mean that if if a man's wife died, um, he could never remarry. Because he only had one wife. Well, that's not what it means. Um, And that kind of, you know, is just wrong. Others said that, that a man who has ever been divorced cannot be an elder. Maybe when he was younger, before he even became a Christian, something happened in his young marriage and, and there was a divorce. And then after years they came to Christ and, and now he's a, a mature man and he's married. And, and some churches would say, nope, you still can't be an elder. That disqualifies you. Um, I think Paul here is focusing on a man's present spiritual maturity. Okay, He's not focusing on the sins that he may have committed years ago. And that's very clear from just the context. I mean, you know, what if a man used to be self-willed before he was a Christian? Or what if a man was quick-tempered before he was a Christian? And now he becomes a Christian. Does that disqualify him like these other things? No, it doesn't. What if he used to be an alcoholic? before he became a Christian and he got saved and the Lord delivered him from alcoholism and now he wanted to be an elder. Do we look back and say, well, you were once addicted to wine. No, you can't can't serve as an elder. No, that's not what it's saying. I mean, if that were the case, you know, nobody would qualify as an elder. So do these past evidences of spiritual maturity prohibit a person, a man, from ever becoming an elder? And my answer would be no. No. Okay, Paul is more concerned with the present godly character than past immature behavior. The term there literally a one woman man, that's what it means. And it has to do with a person's character. That he's devoted to his wife and his wife alone. He's not a what we would call today in in our modern vernacular a womanizer. His thought life is under control. Under the control of God's spirit. So that he's not enslaved to lust. He's not enslaved to pornography. An elder should be a man who has a track record of being above reproach in mental and moral purity. This means that a man who has never been divorced and maybe has been married to the same wife for 50 years, he may be disqualified from being an elder because maybe... He can't get his thought life under control. Or maybe he's not a one-woman man. Maybe he's always flirting with other women, making his his wife feel insecure. So I don't think that it's necessarily focused on that. I think it's focused on our present-time character. Um, There's been a lot of men who has gone through the horrible experience of divorce and God hates divorce. Let's just say it. That's what he says about it. But it's a very real experience. And I think when people go through that, we have to understand that you know what? God forgives that just like he forgives anything else. And so we, we have to be careful sometimes. Especially when when it when it happens before the person ever even comes to Christ. We have to be careful. Now, I will say this. If, if that causes them not to be above reproach in their community, or if that causes them, whatever, if they have a history of doing things that causes them not to be above reproach, whatever it might be, then maybe they're not called to be an elder. But I think the requirement does not bar a single man from being an elder as long as he is morally pure, including his thought life. So that's the first thing. An elder must be a one-woman man. Secondly, an elder must have children who are under control. This gets a little controversial. A lot of people believe different things about this verse. Because he says, a husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to this charge of debauchery or insubordination. Does that Greek word mean believing? Or faithful? Different translations translate it differently. Does it refer to children who are still under the Father's roof? Or does it also apply to adult children? somebody that I highly respect, John MacArthur, argues that even if one of a man's children, whether he's at home as as a child or out on their own as an adult, if they're not a believer, that disqualifies that man from being an elder or even a pastor. This is maybe one of the, the few times I may disagree with Dr. John MacArthur, not that I'm anybody, but if that would be the case... I don't think you would have a lot of pastors who have young children who can't testify to the faith of their, their ch- chi- children. Another individual says it only applies to children in the home, and that word means that the children are faithful and under the Father's control. In other words, they're not rebellious. Now, we can't go into a study of all these different views just for time's sake, um, But my personal view is this. I think the view that all of a man's children, whether they're younger or older, they have to be believers, I think that stretches it too far. And it really puts on the elder the responsibility for his child's genuine conversion, which in my mind is out of their control. Um, There's many godly men who have had children who have rebelled against God in spite of the father's example, um, some say, well, Proverbs 22 6 doesn't it say you train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he's old, he won't depart from it. And so they argue that if a child goes astray, it must mean that the father or mother messed up somewhere. And they're really misinterpreting that verse. It's not an ironclad promise. I know a lot of wonderful Christian parents who've done everything they can to sacrifice and to raise their children in a way that would be honoring to the Lord, and yet their children turn out in a way that's dishonoring to the Lord. It's not always the case, but there are examples of that. So I think if you train a child properly, he will grow up to follow the Lord, but there's always exceptions. and I think as important as a father's example and training are, ultimately salvation is what? It's a supernatural act of God. We can't save our children. And while he uses godly parents in this process, no action on the part of the most godly father can guarantee the salvation of his own children. And so our our text I think, requires that we should look carefully at a man's relationship with his children. Does he model godly behavior at home? Is he conscientious to train the child in the ways of the Lord? Does he pray? Does he read the Bible to his family? I mean, if so, normally most of all, but maybe not all, of his children will come to believe in Christ and even desire to serve the Lord. If all or most of his children grow up and reject Christ, then there's something wrong in the home. And that would cause someone not to be above reproach. Therefore, he would not qualify as being an elder. But I just think it's a little hard line to say that if you can get all your children to sign on the dotted line, yeah, I'm a believer, well then that's okay for leadership. Because <laughs> I've known a lot of parents that claim their children are believers and their, their, their children claim that they're believers and they, they live uh, what would we would consider a godly life for three or four years through high school and then they go to college and they reject everything and they turn into the most reprobate person on the face of the earth because their, their faith wasn't real. So we have to be careful with this. And each situation must be prayerfully considered. And so whether... You view or you take Paul's overall point here is clear. An elder must be a godly husband and father. If his home is not in order, don't expand the responsibility of the home over the family of God. And that goes for not just elders, beloved, that goes for anybody in ministry, right? I mean, there's been people over the years who've approached me about, you know, boy, we're really excited about starting this new ministry. and will you help us do this and do that? And you look at their family, and it's a wreck. And the ministry might be a great opportunity, but you know what? We have to go to them and say, at this time, we wouldn't advise you to overstretch yourself by starting a new ministry or getting involved. Why don't you spend time nurturing and ministering to your family at home? And once you get things under control there, then we can talk about ministering somewhere else. So a man who's not devoted to his wife and to his children, and his children are unruly and rebellious, should not be put into church leadership. It's, just, it's very clear. Well, what's the second thing here? An elder must reflect spiritual maturity in his spiritual character. An elder must reflect spiritual maturity in his character. See, Paul repeats here the summary of qualifications for being an overseer, being above reproach. And then he adds in verse 7, as God's steward, okay, for an overseer as God's steward. See, an elder or overseer, they're interchangeable terms. Don't ever forget that. But a steward was a household manager who was accountable to the owner for overseeing daily operations. The church is the household of who? God. It's God's household. 1 Timothy 3.15. So the elders or the overseers are to manage it under God's authority. And they must be given account to him. Which is a, kind of a, a scary thought at times. When you step into the role of an elder or minister in, in a church, you know, you, you're really stepping up to the plate here. You're, really, you're, you're going to be held account for things that you do that, that other people may not be. It's an added responsibility. And as a steward, you have to remember, this isn't our church. It's God's church. It belongs to God. It doesn't belong to any man. He purchased it with the blood of his own son. Elders are just his stewards. They're those who come alongside and kind of oversee things. Oversee things. Paul goes on, and he lists five negative character flaws that an elder must not have. And then we have six positive qualities that he must have. Well, let's look at the negative ones first. First of all, negative character flaws that an elder must not have. First of all, the elder must not be self-willed. You know what that word literally means? Self-pleasing. The only reason you're an elder is so you can control things to do what you want to do. You're not con- concerned with whatever anybody else wants. You, you want what you want, and you're going to become an elder in the church to make sure that it gets done. It it, it refers to a man who just maintains his own opinion and asserts his own rights. It doesn't care about the rights or feelings or interests of others. A self-willed individual or man in this case, generally will take the contrary view just because he loves to assert himself. He may not even believe it, but if if all the elders say, A, well, he's just going to say B just to cause some problem. They're self-willed. A self-willed person is definitely not a team player. They wield their power over others. A self-willed person very rarely will admit that they're wrong. They act in such self-willed ways in the church or with other elders that you can assume that he runs his own family more like a drill sergeant. You don't want that person as an elder in the church. Secondly, an elder must not be quick-tempered. A quick-tempered man is, is the person who's always just a spark away from just exploding with wrath. And they use their anger to intimidate others, to get his way and control people. And he's also usually a self-willed man. You can see how these go hand in hand. James chapter 1, verse 19-20 to 20 says this, "...but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak... And slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Patience, kindness, self-control are the fruits of the spirit. And that should govern a spiritually mature man. Now, don't get me wrong. As elders, we don't possess all these good qualities. And we don't struggle with some of these negative ones. See, the call to eldership is not the call to perfection. Perfection. It's not like elders have a little halo around their heads and they don't ever do anything wrong. That's not the case. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife or Shelly or, or, or Yuki or whoever, you know, Maricela. Uh, ask some of our elders' wives and they'll tell you, oh yeah, yeah, they, they got issues. See? It's not demanding spiritual perfection. That's not the point. The point is, is that you're, you're kind of, you have things under Somewhat of control. You're above reproach. To be honest with you, I mean, sometimes anger is, is one of my downfalls. It just is. I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky person, but, you know, I'll stand before you today and say, man, I'm just ashamed sometimes how I've responded to my wife in anger. And I'm thinking, over what? You know, I, beloved, sometimes I've been so angry I can't even remember what we're talking about. <laughs> You know, some of you guys relate to that. It's, it's just like, wow, you're just seeing red. And it's like, what are we even talking about? And see, that needs to be confessed. That's sinful. You know? And it, and it needs to be yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit. See, now, if that's something that happens every day in my life, every time I, I communicate with my wife, it's, I'm yelling at her. Every time I communicate with the elders, in the body, I'm yelling at them and in their face. And Well, we got an issue, we got a problem. Okay, but none of us are perfect. Third thing here, an elder must be not addicted to wine. Another controversial subject, but we'll cover it quickly. An elder must not be addicted to wine. What does wine include? Wine includes all alcoholic beverages. It just does. The Bible does not prohibit Listen to me. The Bible does not prohibit drinking alcoholic beverages, but it does warn about the dangers of wine and the dangers of strong drink, especially for leaders. It warns us drunkenness and addiction to alcohol are always sinful, always sinful. There's never an exception where you could say, "Well, yeah, you know, I had a couple beers. Well, I got a little buzz on, and you know, but I could still drive, or oh, it wasn't that bad." No, that's sin. That's sin. You're yielding your body up to the control of a substance that's outside, other than the Holy Spirit. The Bible is very clearly clear about that. So, if you can drink a keg of beer and not feel anything about it, it's just like drinking water. I don't have an issue with you. I'd find that hard to believe. (laughs) And I think if we were to be really, really honest, those who drink alcoholic beverages, drink them for a purpose. Sure, they may enjoy the taste. They may just switch it around the glass and do all that. But the end effect of any alcoholic beverage, when you enter it into your body, it has an effect on what's going on with your body. And so you have to be careful. You can't drink too much. Why? Well, then you fall into the drunkenness category. And let me say this. You can be addicted to something and not necessarily abuse it. There are a lot of people who are addicted to alcohol who aren't drunks. Just something to think about. And coming from a family who has alcoholism in its roots. From my mother and my brothers and everything. I can just tell you, early on in my life, I mean, it was something, you know, we'd be playing football in the front, front yard and, you know, there'd be a, a cold beer there and my brother would offer me a drink and, you know, I was 10, 12 years old. Wouldn't even, didn't even think, oh, this is wrong. It wasn't a big deal. I didn't get drunk, I just drank. But I remember in high school, going out with my friends Drinking, not because I liked it, but drinking for the sole purpose of getting drunk before I was a Christian. Getting so drunk, you don't even remember what you did. Getting so drunk, you're in there hugging the toilet, throwing up your insides, thinking, wow, this is cool. It's not cool. It's disgusting. And then you add all the trauma of alcoholism and all the families that have been destroyed by alcoholism and all that stuff, and it's easy to say, well, they're not responsible with it. Well, that's true. And it's easy for those who drink alcohol to sit there piously and say, well, you know, we can handle it. Too bad if you can't. That's true. But you know what? Church leaders, and especially church leaders, should be especially careful so that they do not cause younger believers to stumble. That's the issue. And not just leaders. As church members, we should be very, very careful about the issue of alcohol in our own home. Because it affects the way we act. It does. Talk to any doctor. When you put alcohol into your system, it has an effect on your system. And I know some guys have a beer just to take the edge off or a glass of wine, whatever. Well, the Holy Spirit should be taking the edge off, not a glass of alcohol. Once again, the Bible doesn't prohibit it, but it definitely gives a lot of dangers and a lot of red red flags about associating with it and drinking it. And so you have to be careful, and especially as leaders within a church. I mean, I I would cringe at the thought of... Having a Thanksgiving dinner or something at my house and having a bottle of wine on the table not knowing that maybe somebody who's coming used to be an alcoholic. And the stumbling block that would cause in their life. It's not their responsibility to tell you those things. See, that's why we have to be above reproach. We have to be careful. We have to be, make sure. Here it says that we're not addicted to wine. Fourthly, an elder must be not pugnacious. Pugnacious means physically hitting others. Okay? Now, I don't know if that comes out of the, the wine or what, but if you get to that point, you know, if we have elders meetings where you have people slugging each other, we got a problem. It refers to somebody who's literally combative. And, and you laugh, but I've heard of churches who literally have... Meetings more along the congregational kind of thing where they're literally slugging it out, pushing and shoving and calling names. See, it should be needless to say that an elder should never strike anyone, especially his wife or his children. I mean, if he, he spanks his children, that's, that's fine. But he does it exercising control, doesn't abuse the child. I just think it's an important point to make. And then, fifthly, an elder must not be fond of sordid gain. 1 Timothy 3.3, Paul states that he must be free from the love of money. Money itself is not evil. Let me say that again. Money itself is not evil, okay? But it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's kind of like a a loaded gun. It'd It'd be very Uh, useful if you used it properly in the right situation, but it can also hurt others or even yourself if you mishandle it carelessly. And basically the Bible says a greedy man is not qualified to be elder because greedy men are not godly. (laughs) That's why they're not godly. They'll be tempted to take advantage of people financially, or take advantage of, of other situations, whatever it might be. So those are the the negative things. And quickly in closing, positive character qualities that an elder must have. Well, first of all, he must be hospitable. The Greek word literally means a lover of strangers. A lover of strangers. Again, this is a a quality that every Christian must strive for. It's not something you have automatically. I am a very introverted person. I don't enjoy being around a lot of people. It's it's emotionally draining on me. Okay? Okay? Just that's who I am. But I know I have to do it. I know that's part of the role of being a pastor. I can't just, okay, amen, and, and go off and get in my car and go home and sit on the couch and watch TV. No, that would be rude. That would be wrong. You have to go to the fellowship hall and talk to people. And, and, and you know, sometimes that's uncomfortable for me, but that's okay. That's what God's called me to do. It's, it's being hospitable. We need to make sure that our elders are Hospitable. If, if elders are not friendly and warm toward outsiders or others, then you know what? The whole church becomes indifferent and becomes selfish. And hospitality means this. It doesn't mean just having somebody over for a cup of coffee. It means taking a genuine interest in others. You're sincerely interested. You make them feel welcome and at ease. It should begin here when we gather together as the body of Christ. If you're talking with someone you know and you see a visitor alone at a table and they're visiting our church for the same for the first time, I pray to the Lord that someone would go over and introduce themselves and don't let them eat at that table by themselves. Go to the visitor, make them feel welcome. Secondly, an elder must love what is good. Negatively, if he doesn't feel his Mind with all the violent, sensual filth that's on TV or motives. Positively, the, the, the Bible says that Paul put it this way in Philippians 4 8 what, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's what he says. Thirdly, an elder must be sensible. Uh, the New American Standard translates that word prudent. First 1 Timothy 3.2, it means to be of sound mind, especially in the sense of, of not being impulsive. Um, because in a church, you have the extreme of emotion. You have emotions about some of the silliest things sometimes, and everything's fluctuating, and everything's mixing up. So, you know, you can't just go with your emotions on any given thing. You don't give in to impulses that would be sinful or harmful. You're level-headed. You live in light of the priorities and the commitments. You kind of hold the, the boat on that steady, that steady horizon. Keep it going in the direction it needs to be. You're sensible. An elder must be just. That word means righteous, generally. But usually, here, it probably refers to a man who is fair, who is equitable in dealing with others. Not a man who's standing up saying, I have my rights, you know, how dare you treat me, I'm an elder in this church. He's not partial to the wealthy, but he doesn't ignore or belittle the poor. He's able to weigh out facts of the matter and make impartial decisions based on evidence. And then fifthly, an elder must be devout, must be, refers to practical holiness, being separate from sin and evil behavior. Now, you could apply these to all of us, but especially to leaders, Because the Lord himself, the Lord himself said that he was a friend of sinners. So just because we're elders, that doesn't mean, oh, sorry, we we dine somewhere else, or we we don't do this, or we don't do that, we stay away from all the sinful people. No. We don't live in a monastery somewhere, no. Okay, we're called to be a friend of sinners. But we're not influenced by that sin. We're called to be the light in this, this lost and dying world. The devout man takes God and his word seriously. He doesn't take the things of God as a joke. We live in obedience to God's word. And then sixthly, the elder must be self-controlled. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25, and it refers to an athlete who exercises to get everything under control so that he can win the prize. And he doesn't desire to do anything that would hinder him from that goal. He'll be disciplined, in different factions of his life. He'll grow under the power of the Holy Spirit. See, those are things that I think we need to clearly understand. And the last thing for this morning, reflects spiritual maturity in sound doctrine. Elders must be godly men who hold firmly to and boldly teach God's word of truth. Five requirements, and we'll open with this next week, but I just want to read them for you here. Five requirements of elders with regard to God's word. First of all, elders must be men of biblical understanding. Secondly, elders must be men of biblical conviction. Elders must be men of biblical obedience, biblical exhortation, and biblical courage to confront error. We'll pick up there next week. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church and that you've called us to be part of it. Lord, we thank you for each one that's here today. And Lord, I know that maybe for some, maybe here for the first time, this all might be new to them, but Lord, basically, as we gather together as the body of Christ, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, and therefore we want to understand it the best we can. And so we open this book each week, and we study what it tells us in, in, on these pages, and we, we strive to make the, the meaning plain so that we can see it and apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you for your church and we thank you for those who serve as leaders even here at this church. And Father, we thank you for those who are may even sensing a call to leadership in this church. And we pray that they would discern your calling clearly. And Lord, I pray that this church would continue to uphold your word and desire to do those things that are right. Lord, we pray for those who may not know you as you, they're... Lord and Savior. Father, maybe they're still under the burden of their sin. Lord, we pray that you would uh, free them from that. Lord, draw them by your Spirit. Show them that they, they have a need of a Savior. Lord, the Word of God is very clear. It says, there's none righteous, no, not one. And that doesn't matter whether you're a visitor, a member, an elder, a pastor. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves. We need the righteousness of Christ. That's why he died on a cross. And I pray that this morning, if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that they would be obedient to the gospel call. And Lord, if they want to find out more about this, that they could talk to someone after the service and help them discern spiritually whether or not they're in the faith. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Pray for our fellowship time afterwards that you'd bless the food to our bodies. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.